Welcome back, everybody, to yet another, another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. This one's going to be a bit different, but we do have the same old, same old Michael Lavornia in the house. It's good to be the same and old. <laughs> um, yes, thank you. And we're going we're gonna to be going in a different direction in a bit, Michael, but I wanted to start by tackling a couple of news items. that It's been fairly quiet for news of the, of the last couple of weeks, would you say? Absolutely, yes. Right. Summertime. Yeah, summertime. There's not a lot of new hi-fi coming out. But yesterday, Bowers and Wilkins announced a Generation 2 of their PX7, I believe they're over-ear Bluetooth headphones. I think they also connect either over USB-C, so you can get them direct to your laptop and not use the Bluetooth. Um, they Because they're Generation 2, I believe they've reworked the DSP, the active noise cancellation circuitry, as in the DSP circuitry there. It's not really circuitry, is it? It's more code. They've revamped the microphone. So it's a, it's a whole, I won't say it's a whole new headphone, but it's a, it's a new version. And it comes in a really attractive blue color. And I know you, you, <laughs> gave, you gave me shit a, a couple of years ago in, in Denver for buying a pair of Sonys in a sort of sandy beige. And you said to me, John, do they also make those for dudes? Which, you know, I'll forgive you for. I haven't clung on to that for five years. No, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a pair of these Bowser Wilkins because I think hmm. they're in sort of the top tier along with the Sony and everyone wants to pitch these things against the Sony and the AirPods Max from Apple, right? What's the uh, price point? I think it's pretty expensive, actually. It's close to 400 euros. So it's okay. not as expensive as the Apple's, but it is as expensive as the Gen 5 Sony, the uh, WH-1000XM5. Hmm. So I think the, uh, the, the sort of premium Bluetooth headphone market is really heating up. Um, Bose have well, the Bose tends not to produce something every year, but Sony and and Bowers and Wil well, Bowers and Wilkins. It's been two years since the lot of the first generation, but you know they're a, a reputable speaker company, and they make. The, I did test the first gen PX7, and I thought they were fantastic and different to the Sony, but in I wouldn't say necessarily better, but they were just different. Mm. So yeah, and then the other piece of news is is quite curious actually. It's a new headphone amplifier from Shit Audio. And I've got to get the name right. It's called the <laughs> it's called the Folkvanger, Folkvanger, which means people something, I would think. And mm. it, it's got ten tubes in it, which is as shit. I'd readily admit, right? This is a crazy time with the worldwide tube shortage to bring, <laughs> yeah. bringing a tube <laughs> amplifier to market, right? Yeah, for sure. It's a limited edition, is that right? Yeah, two hundred and fifty pieces. I think they're making. Mm. Yeah. Um. So not only is that kind of wacky, and I mean, they, I know shit could make these sort of crazy left turns and they've earned the right to do it, I think, you know, because they've produced so much sort of good bread and butter stuff and they'll sell that 250 out in a heartbeat, no problem. But what is really interesting about this particular amplifier, according to Jason Stoddard, its designer, he said it doesn't measure very well. Like it doesn't, it just on the bench or whatever you call it, when you hook it up to an audio precision unit, it doesn't come off very well. So you have to ask yourself, right, why would a company release a headphone amp that apparently doesn't measure very well, right? Mm. Now, could it be, could it possibly be that even though it doesn't measure very well, it could sound pretty good? And this is what Jason Soddard asserts. He did also say in the HeadFi chapter on this product, product introduction that he did try and improve the the measurements of this amplifier by changing its operational 
level or mode. I'm a bit hazy on the specifics of that, actually. But basically, making a change to improve the measurements. And he said he, he, he did that. Hmm. But then he said all, the, all the, sort of the magic and the life went out of the sound. So he flipped it back to how it was, and that's the one they're going to release, right? So he could have made it measure better, but didn't. Um, so obviously, being an amplifier designer himself, you know, he's an expert in this field, not like you or I, Michael. Uh, correct. Right? Or probably most people on the internet are not amplifier design experts. He's decided that this is going out as it is. Now, I guess he knows things that we don't know. And as <laughs> I guess as a, a kind of sciencey type person or as an engineer, you have to sort of look at hi-fi products and think, okay, what is it that we know, right? What is it that we, we know that we know, if you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So far. So, right. But then as a, as a, somebody who is science-driven, you'd also have to, you'd have to consider the possibility that there are some things you, you know you don't know, right? So you yes. have to know what you don't know. But then there's also this third other realm of there is stuff out there that you don't know yet, but you don't even know that you don't know it, right? Now, to me, this is the, this is the perfect way to look at something scientifically, right? Is to acknowledge what you do know, also to, to acknowledge what you don't know, and also be aware that there's just crazy shit that you've yet to discover, and you don't even know what that is yet. And that brings us to our special guest today, because he is an expert in this area of measuring hi-fi gear. And we've called him in, Michael, because, again, we don't know shit about measuring stuff. And this Correct. dude's an expert, right? Yes. And he's hopefully going to shed some light on what measurements can tell us about audio gear, what they can't tell us. I don't think he can tell us what we haven't discovered yet, because no one can do that. But I guess it's a game of, hopefully, two halves. Um, I should introduce him. His name is Cameron. He runs a YouTube channel and website called Golden Sound. Many people will know of Golden Sound or Cameron as the dude that made the MQA video, but we're not talking about that today. Oh. We're gonna be <laughs> I'm sorry to spoil the fun. <laughs> but we are going to be talking about measurements. And I have at least, I've got about 20 questions I want to hit Cameron with, right? And I'm just going to go through them, if that's okay with you, Cameron. By the way, Cameron, really? sorry, I should say welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Happy to be here. All right. So <laughs> I've got 20 questions I want to hit you with, and I know Michael's going to chip in, you know, whenever he feels like it, or, or not. I don't know. I don't know when Michael's going to be quiet today. We'll see. I'm not um, sure, yeah. Okay. But I just, because Michael and I are so curious about this, because, well, I won't speak for Michael in this, but I'll speak for myself. It's like we, I see a lot of scientism on the net. Right. In that, that science, there are people out there who just think that, yeah, it's, it's fine that you, you hear those things, but to, to really understand a product, you have to measure it. And those numbers are really what matters. And I'm not so sure that's true. And I'm hoping that by asking you questions today, Cameron, you can shed some light on this. Right. Well, hopefully I can do just that. <laughs> I, like I said, I can't tell us uh, what we don't know, but hopefully I can talk about. Well, I can't, I can't tell us what we don't know, but I, hopefully I can tell us some of the things that we know we don't know. Right, right. Okay, see? I knew I'd, I'd turn, this, turn this into a sort of a, a Mobius strip of an episode already. Now, okay, the first thing that we tend to hear from measurement people, especially the, the, the sort of the scientism types, is they love to call themselves like objective, right? 
or they like to refer to the measurements as you know wholly objective, as if measurements aren't sort of tainted by the human experience or the human, or just tainted by humans, right? Or the the what, what's the what's the word I'm looking for here, Michael? Help me out. Subjective. Well, yeah, I guess the, the measurements aren't at all tainted by subjective opinions, right? Mm. But Cameron, here's my thing, right? Is that what I don't understand is if you're measuring a piece of gear, isn't the experiment design itself a subjective choice? I mean, you can you can choose to do various things and not others. And aren't this is the the real kicker for me? Aren't the interpretations of those measurement results subjective? I mean, obviously within limits, but you know there is some there's some leeway there, right? So yeah, absolutely. I guess what I'm getting at is here is like. This objective term, I, I don't think it's entirely true. No, um, and I would completely agree. Uh, people throw the word of objective around far too much nowadays, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you just had a complete set of data, nothing else, no commentary, no anything, just graphs and numbers, technically that would be objective, but you also wouldn't necessarily be able to gain much useful from it. There's, there's a couple problems here. The first mm-hmm. is that as soon as you start interpreting data subjectively, because we don't know everything for certain, everything that we understand about the measurements and what they're telling us is, well, gained through experience and even peer-reviewed studies published in journals and things don't agree 100% with each other. Mm. And in many cases, there just isn't much information on how audible something is, how it affects what we hear. And so a lot of the time you are guessing. I I can show a graph showing that a a DAC has X level of jitter, or that DAC A has lower jitter than DAC B, but I can't necessarily tell you exactly how that imp- influences the sound because we don't know for sure. We might have uh, some feedback from one or two people here and there who've directly compared stuff in a pretty sensible manner, but there's no actual solid study done with lots of people with lots of controls to tell us how it influences what we hear. The word objective is literally defined as not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing facts. And therefore, the moment you either provide your own interpretation of the data or even deviate from a 100% standardized measurement methodology, it's no longer strictly objective. Mm. And, oh, I did a video on this recently, um, and you you shared it on your community post. Thank you for that. Uh, My pleasure. which shows a lot of the different ways in which measurements can be altered, not necessarily because anyone's doing anything wrong, but just because who's to say what the right way is. If I'm measuring the total harmonic distortion of a DAC, you have to choose what bandwidth are you measuring that in? How low do you want the FFT to go? These are subjective choices for which there's no definitive standard. Um, One example I gave was that Amir at Audio Science Review. For a lot of his tests, he runs his analyzer with a 24 kilohertz bandwidth, mm-hmm. whereas for my tests, I run mine with the 20 kilohertz bandwidth. And there's no right or wrong here. They're just different. We'll have slightly different numbers and slightly different results, but both of them are accurate. Both of those results are objective, and yet they're different. So which do you go by? So you've made, and Amir has made, different subjective choices in your experiment design and setup. Yeah, exactly. There are uh, absolutely quite a lot of set standards already before measuring everything from source gear to headphones and speakers, but there's also a lot of stuff where there there just is no standard, and so you do have to make choices. Sometimes it can be pretty logical as to what the ideal answer or ideal way to do things would be, but sometimes, yeah, there's just several different ways of doing things with pros and cons in each. 
So I think in your video, you showed that by changing those subjective choices in the way that you conduct your experiments can sometimes fairly significantly affect the outcome or the, I guess, the numerical outcome that comes out of your audio precision unit, right? Yeah. Um, I, I What I did was I took a single device, just an amplifier, and I changed a bunch of settings all in completely, well, arguably valid ways. And I moved the Synad value from, I think it was about 125 dB, which is higher than anything you'll see on Audio Science Review, for example, or, or my own website. And I moved it all the way down to about 111 dB. And all of those tests are completely valid. All of them are correct. There's no lies or anything going on there. It's just they were tested differently. And unless you, as the person looking at the measurements, both knows what how, how things have been set up and also understands what those settings are doing, mm -hmm. you can't necessarily make a fair comparison. And the whole point of the video was basically to say that you shouldn't trust measurements implicitly for that reason. Uh, and any set of measurements taken by a different person on a different setup or just in any different way aren't necessarily going to be the same as someone else's, even if both of them are fair. So what you're saying is, is the audience typically isn't clued in to those, those choices made by the person conducting the measurements when they're measuring a piece of gear, right? It, it depends on who it is. Um, I personally try to provide as much information as I can. I, I basically, uh, I've created an automated sequence on my audio precision mm. and I provide the full report. I, on the main post, I slim things down and just provide graphs with basic settings information. But for the people who are curious about and want to understand exactly how I've done everything, uh, all of that information is provided as well in a, in a PDF file. But some other people don't provide any of that information. You don't necessarily know what bandwidth they're running things at, what FFT settings they're using. You don't even know how they've got things connected to the analyzer. There's there's a lot of different things, or even weighting settings. Um, and this is actually one thing which kind of annoys me with manufacturers sometimes, mm. is obviously they want to make their products look the best, right? Mm. And so if you look at a lot of different manufacturers, they will use an A-weighted metric because it usually gives a higher number, even can, though can most of the people... Sorry to, sorry, sorry to stop you. Would you mind explaining to to, to two dumbasses here um, what A-weighted means? Yes. Uh, so an A-weighted metric, basically, it's, it's trying to account for the human hearing sensitivity. So we're more sensitive to things uh, in the mid-range, effectively, than we are at much lower frequencies or much higher frequencies. And so what it does is it puts more weight in those mid-range frequencies than it does at higher frequency stuff. And that means that things like power supply noise, for example, uh, are factored in much less to the final number than they would be on a completely unweighted measurement. Gotcha. And so a lot of manufacturers will use A-weighted measurements, which, again, th there's completely valid reasons for using them. The whole point of them is that they're supposed to give a more accurate to what we can perceive uh, representation of how something's going to perform. But it is different from how myself and Amir and a lot of other people do measurements. And so mm. if you as a consumer aren't aware of that, it can be really misleading because a manufacturer could be telling you that it's got this really high number and it's amazing and it's higher than anything else you've seen on any other site. And that number is completely true. They've not lied about it, but they just, they've gotten it in a different way. So that's, I mean, you bring up an interesting point there in terms of well, actually, maybe I did as well by calling myself a and Michael a dumbass in not knowing what you're talking about. In that, when you when you publish measurement results, don't you have to explain what this stuff means to the people that might not know, or, or you're you're relying on your audience having a fairly specific, well, a fairly solid understanding 
of what all these graphs and charts tell us, right? Yes, you are. And this is one of the challenges, really. No interpretation mm. at all eliminates any kind of subjective influence or bias from the publisher, because you're not getting my opinion, you are just getting numbers. But it leaves many readers unsure of what the information might be saying, and mm. you're relying on the fact that they themselves have a good understanding of what the graphs and numbers are saying to be able to interpret it. But as soon as you put your interpretation on, it's no longer completely objective. I'm now giving you my yes. opinion. Yes. Right. So it's not this, this objective word, I think is just, I got to say, I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm probably picking or spitting hairs semantically here, but it's, it's just a nonsense, really. There's no such thing as objective measurement when you have to choose certain things to do the experiment and then make certain interpretations subjectively in, in, in analyzing the data that comes out. Yeah, and that's not to say that it means all the information's useless or anything like that. It just means that there are some drawbacks. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't aware of them. And a lot of people putting out measurements don't necessarily want to scream and shout about them because it's well not in their interest. You know, if they're, they're trying to get traffic or something to their site, they, they want to present themselves as a definitive, objective, truthful resource as much as possible. The, the right. best solution would be if everyone could have sufficient understanding of how the measurements are taken, what they're implying, and the commentary from the publisher wouldn't be needed at all. Mm. But the problem is that so many different aspects of audio, and especially the design and theory side, are just pretty complex. And while well, the average person, it's not that they just can't understand it, it's that they probably don't want to spend hours learning about it. They just want to know if something sounds good. Uh, not, not everyone's actually interested in that side of things. Well, I think that's fairly true, isn't it? I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, well, yeah, I guess because Michael and I talk about measurements quite a lot. You're, I know that might might sound surprising, given that we just do listening tests ourselves for our own publications. But he and I, on when we're chatting on the phone, we'll talk about mainly actually John Atkinson and mm -hmm. the measurement results he presents because because and here's the key factor because he explains what they mean. So even as a non-technical, well, I'm not saying non-technical, but I'm. I mean, I, I do have a little bit of a technical understanding, but not as much as you, Cameron, nowhere near, which is why you're on here today talking about as an expert, and we're not. But I, I guess I want to hear from an expert, a bit like going to the doctor, right? I go to the doctor and I say, like, I've got a pain in my leg, right? And he does some tests, and then he interprets those tests for me. And I'm, I'm relying on him as a professional to give me a fair assessment of what's wrong with my leg, if anything, right? Mm. So I need not just the results because he could just hand me the results and go, there's your results, off you go. And then what, what do I do with them? Like I've got no, I've got no <laughs> professional expertise in this field. So yeah, and, and there's a lot of sort of well, <laughs> analogies there that you could use. I mean, you might be able to get a scan from a doctor. That scan is completely objective. It's not lying. It's putting just a, a wealth of information in front of you. Mm. But you can ask two different doctors and they might give you different opinions about what's wrong or how best to deal with it. Right. Right. Yeah, I was actually going to jump in on that analogy, and that is, you know, John, so you go to the doctor and you get not only the test results, but the doctor's interpretation. And it's very common, I, I, we've all seen it play out in movies, certainly, um, to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that I think is to the point that Cameron, or to one of the points that Cameron's making, is we, if 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 someone were to compare different sets of measurements of the same device um, from w a few different websites and from the manufacturer, they have to understand how the measurements were derived. What were the settings used? Were they A-rated, 
were they not a weighted, so on and so forth. Um, and if you're if you don't have access to that information, you can't make an informed comparison between different sets of measurements if you don't know how they were arrived at. Mm. I mean, I I don't. There's, a, there's a, there is one website out there who that does quite an extensive job on measuring gear, but I tend not to read them because a lot of the times the interpretation isn't provided. It's like going to a doctor who just gives you the results off you go, right? And that, that to me is not useful as a non-expert in this field, which is why, you know, I talk, talk, talk to Michael a lot about the measurements that come out of John Atkinson's lab, but not just the measurements. It's like his take on those things. And I guess he and I, well, Michael and I trust his take because he's been doing it for decades. He is undoubtedly an expert. He might make mistakes because that that's human to make mistakes. Everyone right? does. Right. But generally speaking, if you've been like, I mean, I'll give you another example, another medical example, right? So a few years ago, I, I suffered a, a detached retina in my right eye and I had a choice of to go private or public. And they literally said like, it, it just, what your choice will determine the type of surgeon. So I asked about the years of experience for the surgeon and I went for the dude who'd been doing it the longest because I just thought if there's a, a problem, you know, <laughs> when I'm under under surgery, he'll have the experience to deal with that more well, more likely to than than the 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 less experienced surgeon, right? So even when you're interpreting measurements or conducting so-called objective measurements, that experience still matters hugely, right? Absolutely. There's I mean, well, to, to be clear, I'm I'm pretty young and I'm not a qualified engineer. I'm I'm doing this effectively as a hobby. Um I, I like to think that I know a decent amount, but there is no substitute for experience and mm. yeah john, john atkinson is undoubtedly one of the best people in this field and his explanations that he provides alongside his measurements are absolutely excellent and what i like about his is that they're not militant they're, they're, right. they're, they're pretty uh, open and i don't i don't i don't really know what the best word for it is I he guess doesn't throw manufacturers under the bus it's not even that he doesn't throw manufacturers under the bus it's that He's just pretty matter of fact about things. Mm. You you don't typically see reviews from him which are just absolutely one hundred percent negative and absolutely one hundred percent positive. He points out the good and the bad, whereas in some cases from some other reviewers, and and this isn't just an objective thing. This is a subjective thing too. Mm. Uh, you, you see reviewers either absolutely praising a product and it can do no wrong, or it's just awful and there's nothing good about it and you you should avoid wasting any sense of your money. Um, and and for me, I, I much prefer the reviewers who are able to see both the good and bad in just about any product, because there is no perfect product, but there's also not really any product which I don't think has some sort of redeeming quality. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I guess what you're talking about there is maybe having a more balanced view and not being so black and white about things, because people, I mean, the internet has bred this sort of black and white thinking, either things are terrible or they're amazing, and mm. I just, oh, absolutely. I, I don't see the world that way at all, but I know a lot of people well, from what they write on the net, and it is an internet thing. Anyway, I won't go into that. But I, I want to bring actually to, to kind of just while we're kind of talking about John Atkinson, he did do a measurement of a certain amplifier, I think, let's call it recently, right? And he found some measurement anomaly, which he didn't like. And obviously in Stereofile magazine, the there is another reviewer who does listening tests and then publishes his report and made no comment about anything, any issue with the sound. 
And even and obviously he wasn't privy to John's measurement results before writing his piece. I guess he only gets to see it when it gets published. Um, so you have a situation where the measurements weren't ideal, but the the dude who did the listing test still really liked the sound of the amplifier. So this kind of brings me to my next question, Cameron. And it's it's kind of a big one, actually, right? And so I'm sorry about this, but is it possible that something that measures, I won't say poorly, but not ideally, can it still sound good? I think it depends on how you define measure poorly. Because if you just mean a high level of total harmonic distortion, for example, then yes, mm. absolutely. I mean, the best example of this is the fact that, as you mentioned in the intro, the Faultfanger tube amps still exist and are widely loved. Uh, and, and Jason, the designer of that amp himself, said it, it sounded better when it measured worse. There yeah. are certain types of distortion which seem to, at least for some people's preferences, contribute to what is a subjectively very enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there are some other types of distortion which, at least in my experience, uh, IMD, high levels of jitter, or outright clipping, for example, mm. those have always been negative. So I think the key there is just to clarify the difference between what is an objectively poor aspect that could be audible, but subjectively enjoyable, like added second order harmonics, for example. That's quite a common one, which it, it means that a product might measure poorly, but subjectively the feedback on those products tends to be very good, uh, versus an objectively poor aspect that tends to be subjectively disagreeable. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned that there are certain types of distortion which are audibly, I guess, okay or pleasurable for some people, and then there are mm. certain types of distortion that are probably less audibly satisfactory, right? Yeah. So why, why do, and this is not just reviewers conducting measurements, this is manufacturers, I think, as well. Why then have this thing called total harmonic distortion, where everything gets lumped in together in one number? It just seems crazy to me. Uh, and that's a really good question, and it's one that I completely agree with. Um, one, one metric that's kind of become pretty popular on the internet for effectively judging the quality of a product is Synad, which, which mm. is just equivalent to total harmonic distortion plus noise. Mm -hmm. And whilst that number just on its on its own can tell you if something is truly awful or has exceptionally low distortion overall, it doesn't tell you anything about the structure of that distortion, what orders of harmonics are dominant. It doesn't tell you whether it's noise or harmonic distortion based in the first place. It's lumping so many different things together. And it's also completely ignoring every other aspect of performance, like IMD, uh, jitter, crosstalk, phase response. Just It's a very, very simplistic view. And whilst it's a good number just as a quick check to see if something is broken, I personally don't think it's a particularly good way of ranking products at all. Um, both for the fact that there are clearly products with lower total harmonic distortion that many people prefer to ones with higher total harmonic distortion. Again, tube amps are widely loved. Um, but also, there's a lot of products with very similar synad values or total harmonic distortion values that sound completely different. Uh, in, in my video, the example I mentioned was the Rebel Amp and the THX789. Um, because at a similar output level, they had almost identical Synad values. Mm. And yet, you can ask anyone who's tried those two products, they sound incredibly different, with the Rebel Amp being way, way warmer. Now, there are explanations for this. It's not like it's just fairy dust and magic and we have no idea what's going on. But the point is that just total harmonic distortion alone is a borderline useless metric. 
Right. But why does it get banded around so much? I mean, like, is it because people like the idea of a like because it makes measurements manageable, I guess, to people who are not clued into what they really mean, right? You can you can just look at a single number and go, right, that one's either higher or lower than that one, therefore it's better, right? And so, that's exactly why it's gotten so popular is it provides a really easy method of effectively justifying your purchase. You know, if you can see that you've purchased the product with within your budget with the highest number, well, then you've got the best option. No one can tell you different. You have the science to back it up. You have the best option. Is it and, like, and people like that. People right. like the purchase justification. And I, I honestly think it's as simple as that. See, I've got no problem with people buying on the basis of numbers like that. I mean, people can do exactly what they want with their with their um with their money right it just it's their, it's their choice and if if buying something that has a i don't know a a a low thd score if that you know m- makes them feel good about themselves then great have at it but i guess i mean i probably alluded to, the, to this probably a little bit earlier on is that you tend to see them people use these as a stick with which to beat other people about their choices like well you got this amp or this DAC and it's got much you know I guess lower or higher sign ad, and therefore you're either a genius or you're an idiot, right? It's just yeah, it, it unfortunately happens a lot. But mm. to to be blunt, people who say this usually don't understand the full context of the measurements, and right. well, they they're just looking at the sign ad and little else, which suggests they they don't quite understand what it's telling them. Uh, as as an example of a DAC, a topping D ninety SE might have a few dB higher sign ad than a, a, a Core Dave even. Mm-hmm. But it also completely dies whenever there's intersample overs, which can make things sound harsh. Whereas a benchmark DAC 3B or or a Core Dave, they don't have that problem, mm. and so they sound better. That, or at least that's one contributing factor to it. It's pretty rare that you'll actually find a product which measures better in every possible way. And so to look at Cyanad alone is kind of a narrow-minded way of choosing between things. It can be valid sometimes. There's some incredibly expensive products that don't just have subjectively different qualities, but outright faults and design concerns that really don't have any place in a high-end product or ridiculous levels of distortion that it'd be hard not to be concerned about. Mm. So pointing out these major concerns is one thing, but bickering over a product just because product A has 2dB higher sign ad than product B and not even considering all of the other measurements and design aspects is... Well, it, it's outright naive, right? So you're basically saying that, like, looking at a single number and trying to kind of j- j- ascribe a product's audible qualities to that single. It's number. like saying that one car is definitively better than another just because it's got more horsepower, and looking right. at absolutely nothing else. Right. That's a very good way of looking at it. I'm not into cars, so I, I kind of do know what horsepower is. But yeah, okay, that makes sense. All right. So let me. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking down my list of questions, Cameron, if you excuse me for pausing, because I have lo- loads of things, right? So, I, I mean, I guess another big one, I mean, <laughs> this is a really big question, right? Is that can we measure everything that we can hear? In theory, yes. It's not magic. There's no fairy dust in audio or anything like that. If if we can hear something, there'll be a practical explanation for it. Though mm. whether we're actually measuring all of the right stuff at the moment is a completely different question. My personal view is that we're probably measuring most of the really important stuff, but there's a lot of smaller aspects or interactions between different aspects which we need to work on and develop our understanding further. Because mm. even if we can determine the threshold of audibility for 
a particular metric, jitter or harmonic distortion or something like that, in isolation, that doesn't necessarily answer how it interacts with the complex environment that is music and every other performance aspect of a product. And the second thing is just, if we can measure it, can we actually interpret it? We might be able to measure literally everything about a device to infinite accuracy, but that doesn't mean that we can look at a set of 50 graphs and charts and interpret exactly how it will sound. We can tell some of the more obvious things. If it's got lots of second-order harmonics, it's probably going to be pretty warm. Mm. But you can't look at the measurements of a chord Dave and go, right, I'm simulating it in my head. This is exactly how it's going to sound. Right. Okay. I mean, because this is one of the things that I've, I, th this is probably why my interest, my personal interest in measurements has hits a bit of a wall in that what I'm looking for in an ideal world, right, is somebody to be able to measure a piece of gear and go through, I don't know, like 50 different variables or 50 different like measurable qualities, and then somehow map those to what we can expect to hear from that product. But I don't really very often see that. I, I see the criticisms or, or the praise of this being high, so therefore good, or this being low, so therefore bad or whatever. I can see it all sort of analyzed in its own sort of sandbox from an engineering point of view. But I, what I'm looking for is sort of a mapping effect from those numbers to what we can expect to hear. Now, for example, I think most people would agree that a frequency graph, if it's got a big bump at, say, I don't know, 40 hertz, we're going to hear a little bit of a lift in the sub-bass, or more of a little lift, a lift in yeah. the sub-bass, right? So I think most people have the idea that a frequency graph can give us some idea of what we'll hear from a product, right? Yeah. But when definitely. it comes to things like distortion and noise, like, let me ask you another question then. So noise, right? Doesn't noise become, isn't there a point where it just becomes irrelevant? Like it, it's an inaudible, it's below a certain threshold? Well, this is an interesting one because you ask some people and they'd say yes. And there are some studies about the audibility uh, of a noise floor, but then there's not just one type of noise. You can get truly random noise, but mm. then there's also some other types of noise like quantization noise, where, which is, ex exists in DAX. And this is where it's random error, but directly related to timing. And the problem with this is in terms of measuring it, it just shows up as a noise floor. You can't actually separate it from truly random noise. You can simulate it mathematically. Mm. Uh, and Rob Watts is actually talked about this quite a lot in some presentations and how he's got the noise shaper on the chord Dave accurate to below minus 300 dB. Hmm. And at least according to him, going from minus 200 to minus 300, both of which are way, 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 way below the actual analog noise floor of the DAC, made an audible difference. And just in my own subjective uh, experience, using tools like HQ Player, which uh, does a similar uh, task in terms of mm -hmm. noise shaping, Doing noise shaping work even far more accurate than the actual analog noise floor of your DAC does seem to make a difference. This mm. isn't something which has had lots of study done on it to give a conclusive answer one way or another, but uh, at least to me, it's quite interesting and it does seem to make an improvement. Uh, and there's a few people in the industry who seem to think so as well. So in theory, yes, at some point, noise just becomes irrelevant. If you can't hear it, it doesn't matter. But then there are also different types of noise, which that might not necessarily be the case. I mean, you say things like might not necessarily and people are divided on opinions and things like that. So it sounds to me like this isn't something that we know we know. It's something that we 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 know we might not know the full extent of yet. Yeah, 
there's people who've done their own testing, and I'm sure Cord's done internal testing, as have other companies, but there's not been any kind of larger scale or peer-reviewed study uh, even looking at that question. So yeah, it's just one of those things which we don't know. There's quite a lot of people who say, I've done this and it seems to make a difference, but there's no actual conclusive answer. And this is the same for so many things. We, we can get all these measurements, we can look at all these graphs, but we don't necessarily know for sure if we're interpreting them correctly, if we're actually getting the right answers about what subjectively we're going to get out of a device just based on looking at the objective graphs. So you're saying there's not really a reliable way to map many of these measurements to audible qualities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you're actually saying that because, I mean, I, I want to be really clear about this, is that some of the things that we can measure, they might be good predictors of sound quality, but some of them, right, a few of them. But you're saying that a lot of them, I think you're saying a lot of them, we don't yet know how they sort of play out in in when you're sat in front of a hi-fi system. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, <laughs> that there is, there are so many things which we simply don't know. We can measure things to a ridiculous degree of accuracy, and there's a lot of things which we can get a broader picture of, like you mentioned, with frequency response or, as I've mentioned previously, large amounts of second-order harmonics sounding pretty different to large amounts of third-order harmonics, even though the total harmonic distortion value is the same. But then in terms of how different types of distortion interact, how different aspects of noise shaping, even though it's below the analog noise floor, how, how that in influences what we hear, the, or even just looking at a frequency response graph, you can't actually build a mental picture or even simulate from a, a computer exactly how something is going to sound just based on the frequency response. I guess, you know, as a casual observer of some of the conversations that go on on the net about headphones, for example, they, you know, the, the people discussing a pair of headphones haven't heard it, but they've got a a graph of its frequency response that somebody's provided, right? Whether it's a from a well-known website or whether it's just one of the users provided it. And they're discussing or they're trying to break down what this headphone might sound like from this frequency response graph, right? And just this frequency response graph. And I I wonder how how reliable that is. I, I really don't think it's very reliable at all. Um, and there's lots of different reasons for that. The first one is just that the tools you're using for measuring them aren't always the same. If you have a head and torso simulator, which is what's used for measuring headphones, from uh, Brawl and Car, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering that pronunciation, <laughs> uh, it's going to provide different results than one from Grass, which is a, a sister company of Audio Precision, mm -hmm. because the actual rigs themselves are different. And more to the point, every single person's physiology and what's called their HRTF, that's different too. So you're going to have a different experience to what the measurements themselves are showing, and you're also going to have a slightly different experience to the person sitting next to you. You can get a good picture of the overall tonality of a headphone. If it's mm. got a massive mid-bass hump, then it's going to sound pretty mid-bassy and maybe kind of bloated or something, depending on how bad right. that is. But you can't actually look at all the individual peaks and troughs in the treble response where things start to get very influenced by the rig itself and build a mental simulation of how that's going to sound. More to the point, you can't even use a computer or anything to produce a sound that's corrected for your own HRTF because you haven't measured yours accurately. You don't know exactly how those headphones are producing a frequency response on your head. And, and so you can't do that either. There, there is no way, even from a frequency response graph, to actually get a perfectly accurate picture of how something's going to sound. 
And that's completely ignoring the fact that it doesn't tell you anything about distortion or phase or group delay or mm. any of these other factors, which how audible they are is, is up for debate. But it's not the only factor. And unfortunately, it's also not particularly reliable. Right. And you just said that the distortion isn't necessarily a reliable indicator of a headphone's performance either? Uh, distortion, it, it's going to be a factor. But again, we don't have any kind of model to predict how it's going to influence what we hear. You can't look at the THD versus frequency graph of a headphone and go, right, well, it's going to sound like this. Mm. You can make broad uh, assumptions, again, based on if it's got particularly large amounts of certain types of distortion in certain areas, if it's got a huge amount of distortion in the low frequency, for example, but then not in the higher frequencies, you might be able to assume that the low end is going to sound considerably less resolving than the other areas of the frequency response. But beyond that, you can't get a good picture of the subtleties of a headphone. What's the sound state going to be like? Is the center image going to be good? How, how is the imaging in general going to be? There's all of these qualities which the frequency response might give you some hints to, mm. but it's not going to give you answers. You know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because you, what I'm picking up from what you're saying, Cameron, is that maybe some of the measurements, some of them are good at telling us the, the, the big stuff, right? The big differences we might hear. But from my own experience in with hi-fi and headphones as well, is that people generally, when they're trying to choose their headphone, it's the small things that matter to them. It's the, it's the subtle differences that are, are what drives a kind of a preference or a consumer decision. And also generally the differences between hi-fi gear and speakers in the big scheme of things, once you kind of move away from big bass hump or treble peak, you're really talking at a fairly sort of small difference level, right? The deltas that we're talking about oh, absolutely. aren't huge, right? And from what you're saying, I don't think that any of those measurements well, the, the, that we discussed so far can really say or talk to those small differences in any meaningful way. It doesn't seem so. Um, and speakers are a good example because there are a lot of speakers which measure almost perfectly flat. Mm. There's a lot of particularly studio monitors where there's a lot of engineering that's gone into making them measure as close to flat as possible. And yet they don't sound the same. And they don't, pe people will have preferences as to which one they prefer. And because of the fact that the frequency response is nearly perfectly flat, it, it has to be down to the subtle stuff, the small things, which we don't mm. quite know how to build up into the big picture. I saw um, Klaus Heinz, who is the, the lead engineer and was the CEO of Head Loudspeakers. I saw him again in Munich. And a couple of years ago, he told me, I mean, because one of his big things is getting dynamics from a loudspeaker, right? So he's been designing speakers for like 40, 50 years. So again, expert in his field, right? And he was saying to me, like, I can design the dynamics in i can choose the certain components drivers that kind of thing but what i the only way i can test whether my, my design is dynamic enough is by listening to it he said i've got no way of measuring the dynamics of a loudspeaker none at all and he said that nobody else has seemed to have covered this either and so when i saw him in munich i, I, I wanted to double check with him i'm like dynamics right you can't measure it can you he's like nope I really wish people would go out there and find a way to do it because it might not happen in my lifetime, but I hope it does. So this was one example, and this is one example I actually bring up quite a lot, is that you can't measure 
the dynamics of a loudspeaker, to the best of my understanding from having spoken to an expert in this field, right, the loudspeaker design expert. So what's your take on this, Cameron? I mean, can you measure dynamics or no? As far as I'm aware, no. And, and this is actually a really good one because it, it's the source of a lot of sort of debate online. Um, you have to forgive me for sort of referencing headphones, but obviously that's the thing that I'm no, please most into. But uh, the, there's a pair of headphones called the Dan Clark uh, Audio Stealth. And mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, they measure absolutely amazingly. The distortion is ridiculously low. Uh, and the frequency response, just looking at it, it actually has a slight rise uh, into the low end. So you would assume that it's going to be d dynamic and punchy, but it's just not. It has a reputation for lacking almost any kind of dynamics whatsoever. Really? Okay, and I've not heard that headphone. Okay. doesn't seem to be any kind of explanation as to why. I, I, I don't know why this is. I, I've tried them and I, I had exactly the same experience. Mm. But yeah, d dynamics are an interesting one because uh, electrostats are another example. Electrostats have a bit of a reputation, uh, most of the uh, products anyway, for not having particularly good uh, low-end impact and macrodynamics. Right. And there's no, as far as I'm aware, no real explanation for that. I, I'd love to know what causes it because mm. I, I want my music to be as engaging as possible and lacking in dynamics is not a particularly good way to go about that. But yeah, as, as far as I'm aware, there isn't really a definitive answer, which in and of itself creates arguments because then you say, oh, I, I tried these and I didn't like them because they didn't have any dynamics and people will come back at you on forums and go, well, no, it, it extends flat into the sub base. You're wrong. Well, I, I've listened to them. It, it, that's just not what it sounded like. Well, well, the graph says this. So, Right. It's just bizarre that people kind of can take this on. It's almost like it become a, a default stand in certain areas where where graphs trump listening, which I and I know that listening is fallible, and I, I, we'll probably get to that at some point. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I know that listening is fallible. I, I, I do understand that. But I guess we're, we're talking about measurements today, not listening, and we're talking about what we do know and what we don't know, right? And what we know we don't know. And I would put, you know, the dynamics of a headphone or a loudspeaker very much in that sort of in the Venn diagram. I would put it in what we know we don't know yet. It, it area, certainly right? seems to be the case. I would right. love an answer for this because, for me, measurements aren't about ranking products. It's not about saying, well, this one's got a higher number, so it's better. Mm. It's about describing as, as best as possible the sound of a product so that you can make a good choice. You know, if you like a warmer, sweeter sound, then something with a, a, a sort of triode-style distortion pattern where it's got second order, then third order, slightly lower, then fourth order, slightly lower again, uh, in that descending order. If if you'd look for that, you're likely to get something which fits your preference. But if you want something which has lots of dynamics, there isn't an answer as to what you should be looking for at the moment. Right. So I, I, does that mean that headphone and loudspeaker engineers, well, I guess I've just mentioned cloud science, but there's headphone engineers, if they want to make a dynamic sounding headphone, there's no way they can test measure that in their lab before they put it on their head. Well, if someone has figured it out, they're not talking about it. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's probably quite right. a lot of that in the industry. People will have figured certain things out. But if, if they're a manufacturer, it's in their interest to keep it to themselves, right? They don't want to give away all of their secrets. So, mm. yeah, there the, the probably is quite a lot of things where either they don't have a way of measuring it. And as you mentioned, prominent industry figures quite openly admit, yeah, measurements are a handy tool, but they're not a silver bullet. And you have to do listening tests. There, there is no substitute for listening. Think about this in my sort of scientific way, is that if we know that there is one thing 
i.e. dynamics, we know we can't measure it, right? Or we're pretty certain we can't. Then that opens the door to the possibility, I know this is outrageous to say it, but there might be other things that we know we can't measure. We just probably don't know what they are yet, right? Is I mean, that's where we kind of come to the the stuff we don't know yet, and we don't yeah. know we don't know it, right? And it's probably not a case of we can't measure it. We probably are measuring whatever would give us the answer. Mm. It's, again, just a question of can we actually interpret it? We, if we Even if we have all of these numbers and all of these graphs, do we actually know how to model or get an answer as to will this sound dynamic? How, how do you measure soundstage? You can measure what the time domain performance is like, what the jit is like, what the diffusion uh, is like, or crosstalk. All of these things which we know have an effect. You, you can turn cross to, uh, crossfeed on, for example, on an amplifier, and it changes the spatial presentation completely. Mm -hmm. But we don't have an answer as to how big is the soundstage, which one's going to be bigger, which one's going to be better. Because even though we might be measuring all of the factors, we just don't know how to interpret them. So that's another big one for me. And this isn't one I, I mean, I talk about this quite a lot. I get asked about this quite a lot. John, how big's the soundstage, right? Which is <laughs> but it but it is important to a lot of people, right? It is really important to a lot of people. And I, I don't I mean, I can I can talk about it relative. I can talk about it in a comparative way. I can say this one has a wider soundstage than this one, right? But I, I, sometimes when I say this, people go, well. Oh, do you have any measurements to substantiate that? <laughs> no, because as far as I'm aware, there aren't measurements that can reliably tell us about the the, the dimensions of a soundstage, right? Yeah, there's a lot of different factors like, uh, for a speaker, directivity of the speaker, for example, mm -hmm. off-axis response in a room is going to change how the soundstage is perceived. Mm -hmm. um, and, and frequency response itself as well is going to play a massive part. Uh, one thing that's happened quite a lot in headphones is there's a sort of upper mid-range dip which manufacturers have deliberately put there because it makes soundstage sound bigger uh, to the point where people are calling it a faux stage dip. Mm -hmm. um, so th th there are some tricks and there are some areas of understanding we have, but again, we don't have a complete answer. But sometimes when people say, oh, well, do you have measurements to substantiate this? It's... I, the, the lower level stuff, which people might need to think a little bit out of the box on, are sometimes the more interesting ones. It's not just a case of distortion alone. Hmm. So, something can be objectively excellent, but because of that, it can actually sound bad or incorrect. Uh, a good example of this is electrostatic speakers and headphones, because they have way lower uh, or faster decay and usually quite a lot lower total harmonic distortion than the majority of uh, planar and dynamic-based uh, products. Mm -hmm. But music was produced and mastered on dynamic driver speakers and sometimes headphones. It, it wasn't made with the intention of being played back on an ESTAT driver. And so even though a faster decay is in theory an objectively better aspect, mm. it could be one of the reasons contributing to why subjectively uh, many people find ESTATs to have a, a lack of dynamics, a lack of low-end impact. It's not that the product has a poor measurement aspect or that we are not measuring the right thing. It's that actually we're just not thinking about it in the right way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm picking up from you here, Cameron, is that, that, you know, in terms of, well, to go back to soundstage or headstage, there are things we can measure that give us clues as to where where that the, head, the, uh, the headphones headstage might land in terms of dimensions, but it's not definitive and it's certainly not certain right yeah absolutely we, we we've got a lot of hints that we can draw from 
Um, and, and if a characteristic does have some drastic element to it, if it if it has a, a drastic alteration in the frequency response uh, in some particular area, you, you know it's going to make things sound weird and, and not particularly correct. But just looking at all of the measurements that we have, you you just can't tell how big the soundstage on something's going to be. Mm. We don't have a, a definitive way of telling that. Yeah, see, I mean, I guess I'm I'm feeling a little bit demoralized here because, like, you know, I was speaking about this earlier on. My my ideal situation is where I can I can read an article where somebody like John Atkinson or you has measured a hi-fi product and then can take those results and map them reliably to what we might hear. Because once that happens, actually, I'm going to be out of a job. But 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 generally, it just seems to be quite a way off. I just don't see that this is. I mean, John Atkinson himself has said this because he, I think he, in the in the early eighties, set out to kind of create sort of a almost like a, not a rule book, but a a function mapping, right, of how measurements relate to what we hear. And he was, he was, I think he set out to kind of kind of go. Well, if we get this certain number over here, it means this in the listening chair. But I think he, I think he's. He's been on record saying he had to walk away from that project because it just collapsed. It just didn't work out the way he planned it. He couldn't find the, the qualities, the numerical qualities that he needed to reliably predict what we would hear. Uh, well, I could, I would jump in on that. Please just, do, Michael. Yeah. So um, it's my understanding that that project, John's project, um, um, he he believed it would take um, a real uh, time, years, decades to, to come up with useful information. So at last I heard that was a work in process. Right. Um, oh, it's still, the, it's still ongoing, is it? I, I didn't well, I can't say that. You know, I, don't, I haven't spoken to John specifically about this in some time. But last I heard, which was, let's, was in, let's say, 10 years. I mean, that was, mm. you know, this was a... This was a pet project he always wanted to s devote more time to, let's say. Mm. Clearly, when he was the editor of Stereofall, he didn't have time to devote to that. There right. was just too, you know, his time was uh, taken. Um, but I would also throw in a John quote as well. Uh, since, Please you do. Know, yeah, and this is, um, I'm, I've, I'm reading this from your post, <laughs> John. Really? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, well, I knew, the, I knew the quote was there. It was the easiest way for me to find it. So mm -hmm. this is John. The measurements individually don't, tell you how things sound but what they can do is inform the customer if the mind behind that product is a master of the craft or not right and that's one quote now there are other quotes of john's and i've heard him say it that measurements and he has said it's measurements individually don't don't tell us how things sound and that's his conclusion again you know from someone who's been doing this um, as long as anyone I know. I mean, my father oh. used to read <laughs> Stereophile for John's measurements when I was a kid, you know? So, um, and I don't think this, um, Cameron, I don't think that's a diversion from necessarily from what you've been saying. You know, perhaps it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a blunter statement and it's clearly out of context, I admit, but, you know, it, it's something that he has talked it's about. It's a good one, though. Mm. And I think just as a sort of chime in on that a little bit, one one thing that is that uh, with the rise of sort of availability of measurement, people have tended to lean towards effectively making assertions about the abilities of the person designing a product 
based on how it measures. And I think that a lot of people are completely missing the point. Going back to in the introduction when you were talking about the fault banger, he, Jason deliberately made it measure worse because it sounded better. Mm. Just because a product doesn't necessarily have the absolute best measurements, it doesn't mean that the person behind it doesn't know what they're doing. In fact, stick, sticking on the topic of shit audio, uh, for ages, they had a lot of people online talking about, oh, the Yggdrasil DAC, why would you ever buy that? It's so expensive, but it measures horribly. What's the point of it? But people love it. Subjectively, people love And I think it's a great deck as well. But mm. It's tons of fun. I really, really like that deck. But it wasn't. They didn't measure poorly because they don't know how to make a well-measuring deck. In fact, they recently released the More is Less edition, literally to counter those points. It's mm. got a, one of the highest sign-ad values of any R2R deck you can buy, I think, behind only the Hollow May. But it doesn't sound good. And the name of it is literally more is less. And they themselves <laughs> said that they didn't prefer it. it. It was just made pretty much as I think a, a middle finger to those calling themselves objectivists. And I really like that product because it's a great example of where measurements aren't everything. Hmm. And it's also a really good example of where the simple view of measurements aren't enough. Because when you look at the measurements of that product, there are a lot of things which actually aren't that great and you can find faults with it it's just if you go only by cyanide you go only by the surface level measurements that a lot of consumers look at you don't see any problems it's designed amazingly well to do really really well in test conditions but when you actually think outside the box and test it a little bit more dynamically you can expose all sorts of issues this uh, i you know with the way i would um kind of look at at the the more extreme uh view on either side of this you know supposed uh divide which i agree with john i don't think it actually exists but nonetheless there's there are extremists and those ex and so in the in in terms of people who value measurements the people who are go to the extreme place them above all else and then you know and that can um run the uh or that can make someone uh misinterpret and misunderstand the object of a given product's design as you've just described shit made something that um was guided largely by how it sounds and it turned out it didn't measure all that well but that but but they stuck with that product because that was their decision it wasn't because they didn't know what they were doing but if you you know if you have this very extreme view of measurements that they rule above all else, you could certainly draw the conclusion that someone who makes a product that doesn't measure really well doesn't know how to make one that does. And this, I agree, is shit has been having fun with this for quite some time. It, I think this is the second time that I'm aware of that they've come out with um, uh, two versions of a product, one that measures very well and one that they feel sounds better but doesn't measure as well in it. I think on, it, uh, on their Magni amplifier, yes, on the yes. not so well measuring, but in theory, better sounding one on the PCB, it literally says non heretical edition, <laughs> yes. which I think is great. <laughs> yeah, they're clearly having fun with this. Oh, um, uh, yeah, their marketing's brilliant. I love it. Yes, uh, but I think it's a, it also serves a, a useful purpose in that it it speaks to this these um, uh, what I'm calling extreme extremist views. And I'm not suggesting that they're only on one side or the other. I mean, clearly in any, oh. you know, believe me, I live in the U.S. 
I'm happy to be speaking to people across the uh, globe, but, but here, you know, extremist behaviors in vogue. So anyway, I don't and, want to get into that. Uh, as you mentioned, it isn't just a one-way thing. There is sort of extremists as, as such on, on both sides. I mean, my, my personal view is that measurements are interesting and useful. I wouldn't mm. have spent so much money on an audio precision if I didn't feel that that was the case. But I also know they're not a silver bullet. They don't tell us everything. And there's things which we either can't measure effectively or things we can measure but can't interpret as to how they affect what we hear subjectively. But a lot of people, given as measurements are so prominent now, they've been kind of bitten by the objective performance assertion. Mm. They bought an ultra well-measuring DAC or an amp, and they didn't like it. So now they don't just go, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll give that more, some more thought. They go, no, measurements are pointless. I'm not looking at any of them anymore. I'm just going to completely ignore and reject any kind of mm. measurement or objective information whatsoever. Mm. Um, when actually the idea is the middle ground view is kind of the best one. You should think about, okay, well, if I didn't like that, Maybe I should look at what the measurements are saying and try and find something that does align with my preferences. Yeah. Is but but hang on a minute, but hang on a minute, because we're talking about preferences here, right? And the, I think there are two kinds of preferences in at play, and I think we discussed them earlier on, right? There is there's one kind of preference where people buy gear because they want to buy gear they know measures well, right? Mm. That gets them off. Again, fine. But we've also discussed that how measurements are not at all a reliable indicator of how something will sound. So if you're shopping for sound quality rather than engineering prowess, prowess and bragging rights, then really the measurements, well, I said the measurements, most measurements don't really have any relevance to your purchasing decision or preference, right? Well, th they have some relevance. I, I think the key thing to say is that you can get some ideas of a broad characteristic. Frequency response can tell you broad information about the tonality uh, of a product or if it's going to have outright issues. Mm. And you can get an in, you can infer things about, as we were talking, soundstage based on how low is the crosstalk, how good is the jitter performance, those kind of things. If jitter is very low on a DAC and crosstalk is very low, uh, I tend to find that soundstage tends to be better on those products. That's just my experience, mm -hmm. but th that's one of the things that I use measurements for. I, I, you know, I look at a DAC and, and measurements that someone else might have put out of it, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll make an inferation based on that. But measurements shouldn't be this first and last thing. They, they are a starting point to basically weed out things which you probably are not going to like at all, and then you have to listen. You, you just have to listen because you can't build up a full picture. You don't have the full complete information about how a product measures and, and how that's going to sound. Mm. You know, mm. Oh, you go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm tempted. Um, so if I were to, to sprinkle some pixie dust <laughs> onto this picture, I, and I'm being somewhat sarcastic, but, um, uh, and I'm, I'm, my experience, I, I don't really um, listen to headphones, so I'm talking about speakers in room. So when putting together systems, um, I'm not suggesting there's magic at work here. However, the way that components and speakers interact with one another, um, uh, to my, in my experience, um, well, you, you can't predict. You can't predict in absolute terms, how amplifier A is going to interact with speaker A. Um, so in putting together systems, and then in room, that's a whole other topic, but 
I think you know part of my um, part of my uh, disagreement with the extremists on the measurement side is that sure we can measure things in isolation, but once we and an amplifier speaker inter, interaction is is I think an easy example. Um, you know, this is where measurements can really help inform the buyer. In other words, you know how a, a given speaker. Um, the kind of load it presents to the amplifier is very useful information when mm -hmm. looking to mate it with a uh, with an amplifier. So, for example, if you have bought yourself a pair of eighty six dB speakers that you know dip way down below four ohms and, and present a kind of you know a demanding load, um, the last thing you want to do is buy an eight watt amplifier for it. Oh, I always wanted a set amplifier. I'm going to get one, right? And so you do, and you go, "Wow, this is really awful." And, you know, you could go, oh, this amplifier is really awful, but it's not the case, right? The case is that it's it's not a good match, right? You're giving too demanding load for that amplifier. So if you get 100 2 dB pair of speakers that have a, you know, a, a, a fairly benign 8 ohm load, it, you know, then, you know, you're then you're putting things together, you know, in a way that you'll get the most, uh, the best from that amplifier. So I'm just, yeah, you know, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, and there's other aspects as well, which, whilst being objectively poor, to, to I guess, might be subjectively enjoyable. Damping factor is a good example, where that will outright change the sound of your speakers or headphones. You have a higher damping factor. Technically, that is objectively a bad thing. Lower damping factor is, objectively speaking, a bad thing. And yet, a lot of people prefer amplifiers with a higher damping factor, or even full-on current drive amplifiers, which have no damping whatsoever. Um, the very fact that preferences exist in the first place kind of says that objective perfection can't be the answer for everyone. Not everyone likes the same thing, and therefore, objective perfection is not going to be everyone's cup of tea, even though it might be someone's. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably a good point to underscore three times that Michael and I are not against measurement data or their utility on a basic level. Not at all. And I think I can definitely see very clearly how when you're measuring a product camera and it can tell you if the engineer has made a huge mistake, if, yeah. you know, if, if, if there's, a, there's a big problem there. And this is also something that Klaus Heinz has told me. He's like, yeah, measurements are great for, for telling me if I've made a mistake or not. Mm. And they won't tell me how something will sound. They won't predict the sound quality. I mean, now we've covered this a little bit. They can give you indications. Some things are more reliable than others. They can make suggestions and they can point you to things, right? And I think what we've sort of skirted around quite a lot already, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of come in a little bit on this. And I've mentioned the word already is scientism. This idea that measurements trump everything, as if you know, well, you know, you can, you know, all, you know, people can have their opinion on how something sounds, but we won't know what it's really like until we get it into the lab and hooked up to an audio precision, right? Which I think is, the, I guess that's where I've, I've, I do object, and I think the pr the problem is, and this is why we we get these extremist positions on this, is that. The people that object to that scientism are often painted into a corner, into the opposite corner, as being anti-measurement. Yeah. And it's no, I'm not, well, I'll talk for myself, I'm not anti-measurement, I'm anti-scientism, right? I'm anti-dogma, I'm anti-idealism, I'm, I'm anti-militant ideals, I'm anti-extremism, that this is the only thing that matters, right? 
And I, I'm bringing the sort of behavioral psychology into this now because I think we see a lot of this out on the internet and a lot of dogma. And I find it quite objectionable, to be honest. And I'd much rather take a fairly kind of circumspect view as we're trying to do today of like, what you know, what is it that we know and what is it that we don't know and try and you know tease those things out. And I guess, yeah, I, I, I do find the the sort of more militant angle of the internet a bit of a problem. But I do want to kind of highlight one thing, and this is not connected, actually. I know it might seem that it is, but I want to reference a post that Amir made, which I've only just recently discovered, but he made it at the end of 2021. And, you know, we're talking today about how measurements can tell us some things, but not everything, right? I think we all three of us can agree on that today. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, joining joining us, the fourth person joining us on this is Amir from Audio Science Review. He runs one of the biggest measurement websites in the world, right? And he he wrote this post about, you know, I have a scale for how much measurements matter for each category of products. So for him, DAX is 100%. So for him, everything that he can measure tells him everything he needs to know about a DAC, right? Now, we could debate that and how reliable that is, and maybe we, Cameron can speak to that in a moment. But what's really interesting about this post is that like amplifiers for headphones and speakers, he says that measurements can only give us 80 to 90% of the picture due to very, very due to variability of available power. So already we've got like a 10 to 20% deficit, right, of what measurements cannot tell us. And then when he's measuring speakers, Amir asserts that a measurements can only tell us like 70 to 80% of the picture. And with headphones, it's somewhere between 50 and 80%. Now, these are his numbers. They're not mine. I'm, I'm just reading this from a screenshot of his post on his website. Now, I find it fascinating from a behavioral point of view that the guy who runs the world's biggest measurement website is now saying that they don't tell us everything. They only tell us a certain percentage of the picture, which is kind of what I thought all along. But to watch some of the people behave on his website, you wouldn't think that. You would think that measurements are absolutely everything, 100%, all of the time, no question, right? <laughs> the scientism. So, Cameron, what, what do you think about... I, well, I'm not asking to speak, speak to... Um, well, mainly Amir's post, actually, not not the scientism part. Sorry, I got carried away there. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't know about the sort of percentages. I think I'd have to give that some more thought. But, <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, I can say I, I disagree with the DAC number i don't think that's 100 um, percent right and okay so a good example here is r2r versus delta sigma dax r2r dax are kind of coming back into fashion recently yes um there's a lot of models which are getting really popular and th there's some which are objectively measuring quite well as well mm. you could look at the thd imd jitter crosstalk and everything and go nope they're all too low to be audible so any differences must be placebo uh, there's no point spending lots of money on them and they certainly don't sound any different than uh, any different than a good delta sigma DAC does mm -hmm. but actually there are differences even though we can't directly measure them we can mathematically simulate them and know that they're there but we can't actually directly measure them at the output of the device huh. so the key differentiator between an R2R and a Delta Sigma DAC is that Delta Sigma DACs have a varying level of time domain accuracy versus output level, whereas R2R DACs do not. This bit is a little bit technical, but I'll try and explain oh, as best I can. So a, a Delta Sigma DAC, in the purest sense, uses one-bit pulses. It can only mm -hmm. ever be on or off. And so if it needs to output a level of, say, 
0.8 volts and the maximum output is one volt. What it'll do is it'll switch itself on and off really, really fast, a few thousand times with it being on about 80% of the time. And when you put that through a capacitor or low pass filter, it evens out to about 0.8 volts. And that's mm. the basic theory of a Delta Sigma deck. Because mm. of this pulse density based design, the lower an output level you go, the less flexible the DAC's able to be in terms of when it can actually output those one-bit pulses, because it's, it's effectively only got so many it can do without going over in level. There's a direct relation between timing and amplitude when your whole conversion method is based on density. And this means that the relative time domain uncertainty is higher the lower you go. Compare this to an R2R DAC. An R2R DAC doesn't use pulse density modulation. It's not a one-bit converter. It just converts the 16 or 24-bit samples exactly as they are, and it does this at a fixed sample rate. Mm -hmm. So on an R2R DAC, the lower you go in signal level, the time domain accuracy is constant. It doesn't change like it does on a delta signal. Right. And the problem is, uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier, we, we can measure quantization noise, but we can't separate it from the analog noise floor of the DAC. And so when you plug a DAC into an audio precision, even an APX555, which is the, the most accurate we've got at the moment, you can't see what level the quantization noise is at. We can simulate it when you're designing stuff because it's a purely mathematical thing. And Rob Watts has put out lots of great information. Mm. But the key is that, yeah, we can't measure it at the output of the finished product because we've got no way of separating the purely time domain error from the random noise, even though there is actually some evidence to suggest that that is audible. So there is a theoretical reason as to why R2R DACs and Delta Sigma DACs sound different and why this sort of spatial presentation of an R2R DAC is slightly different and why chord DACs have particularly a better spatial presentation than a lot of other Delta Sigma DACs, but we can't measure it. Huh, interesting. So, okay. Mm. Well, that's a great example of how, you know, <laughs> the measurements don't tell us everything about how a DAC would sound. That's, I mean, I didn't understand everything you said, Cameron. I got to admit that the, the Delta Sigma stuff always leaves me a bit confused, but Ottawa, I can, I can visualize that mentally very easily. So uh, that was a great uh, explanation. By the it way. really was. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I really appreciate with your work, uh, Cameron. I've commented about this. I've done a, I've referred to some of your videos, but I, it's, it's just the case. Um, um, you have an ability to explain, you know, complex, uh, um, complexities uh in a, in a very understandable way and so i mean i just wanted to say ah oh, that was good <laughs> thank you very much I, I i mean i try my best it's because the problem is that there are a lot of topics which are unfortunately just quite complex and yeah. not everyone wants to know about them not everyone mm -hmm. cares they just want to know if something sounds good and so yeah they, they, they don't give a damn um but the problem is that some of it is just really not very accessible and so I, I try my best to put it in a simple explanation as best I can. Yeah, yeah. I have another behavioral psychology kind of question for you, Cameron. And, I look, mm -hmm. and this is something I see a lot, right? On Mainly on forums, comment sections, Facebook groups. Somebody will have bought, I don't know, a $300 topping deck. It's, it's, it's either topping or SMSL are very popular, right? And they'll see somebody who's either reviewing or is enthusing about maybe in the comment section about some of the DAC, but it's more expensive, right? And they'll say something like, well, why the hell did you buy that more expensive thing? You're an idiot. 
because I've got this topping SMSL, whatever it is, kind of DAC, and it measures objectively better than your super expensively, wonderfully awesome DAC. So what's going on there? I think, as we mentioned previously, a lot of it is pretty much down to purchase justification. Mm. Um, And a lot of the more militant measurement based people make a lot of different claims about the thresholds of audibility and whether something matters, which actually can't be backed up. It it might seem sensible to assume that on a a J test, which is used to test jitter, Mm. something at minus 120 dB is inaudible. And so people will often make that claim. but do they actually understand that the J test is showing time domain issues? It's a bit of a hack to show them in a frequency domain plot, and you can't directly compare it to frequency domain distortion. That's not how the test was intended to be used. Or that the threshold for audibility of jitter is not certain. There's only two studies on it, as far as I'm aware, both of which both have differing conclusions and honestly pretty questionable methodology, to say the least. Hmm. Um, and that's actually a re- bit of a recurring theme, even if the methodology of a particular study uh, is, is really good. The listeners that they use aren't always necessarily people who have experience listening to a lot of different gear. And th- that alone is a question which hasn't been conclusively answered as do experienced listeners, mastering engineers, hi-fi enthusiasts, musicians, whoever, do they actually have better hearing ability than other people? Um Sorry if I'm tangenting a bit. No, no, go ahead. I I I guess what I'm trying to say is that most of the time these people are saying those things because they don't fully understand what the measurements are saying, what the limitations of them are, and they want to justify their purchase. When you've got resources like Audio Science Review, which provide this ladder of DACs based ranked on one seemingly pretty solid scientific number and a community of people to reinforce that belief, Mm. it's pretty hard to find a reason to doubt that. It's really attractive to a lot of people who are particularly newer to the hobby. And this isn't just a problem for reviewers and us on on the internet, you know, dealing with the people who are very, very militant about measurements and calling us idiots because we like something that isn't topping. Mm. Um, it, it's also an issue for manufacturers. Um, we, we've talked about shit several times, but shit has literally said they've had to change the way that they design products, particularly in the more budget segment, because there are so many people who will not buy anything unless it measures amazingly. That is their primary concern. Doesn't matter what the subjective feedback is. They only care about what the sign number is. I mean, are other manufacturers doing this? I mean, are they sort of focusing on Synad now in order to kind of generate more sales? Oh, absolutely. There's there's a lot of manufacturers who are focusing on that. And e- even if they're not necessarily hyper-optimizing for that one number, it's certainly much more of a concern than it used to be, I think. Mm. Uh, speaking to a few manufacturers who I, I'm not going to name them because, well, it, it, I've not asked them if I can talk about it. No, I understand. But there's several manufacturers who've said that they, yeah, they've had to change their design philosophy to fit what the market is asking for, even though they don't necessarily agree with it. Um, yeah, shit, shit's done this. Uh, Gustav's a good example of where one of their DACs, it's quite interesting because at full output level, which is how Amir measures things, it, it actually has slightly better cyanide than about 6 to 10 dB below that. If you, the, the, the cyanide versus output level curve is not linear. It's like they've optimized it to perform really, really well just in that particular test condition. It's not a particularly massive gap. It's still a very well-performing DAC. In fact, it does sound quite good. Hmm. But just little things like that, which suggest they've made some choices to try and get it as high on that ladder as possible. 
And into sample overs, uh, which is something I mentioned, mentioned before, this is when a digital audio file, all of the samples, the actual digital samples that you've got in the file itself are below the maximum threshold. But when, when it's oversampled and the analog waveform is reconstructed, it goes above the zero dB line. A lot of DACs nowadays can't handle that and they just clip the waveform completely because in order to counter that and not, not have that problem, you have to have some digital headroom. And that mm. means you have to sacrifice a few dB of Synad. And when one or two dB of Synad can mean that you go from the top spot on ASR's ladder to five to 10 spaces down, you can't do that. You just won't sell any more products. And so manufacturers aren't willing to take these kind of choices anymore. Mm. So I, it's, like a, it's a game of compromises then. Yeah, it absolutely is. And th there's a lot of manufacturers who are not not doing any of that. They're not really bothered. In fact, it's it's a pretty small number of manufacturers who are pandering to the, this this approach and, and this desire for ultra-high sign-out above everything else. But it's pretty evident that, especially in the more budget segment of the market, there are a hell of a lot of products which are designed primarily to have high sign-out and it doesn't matter if intermodulation distortion, which is way more audible, is higher. In fact, mm. Gustard, I believe, I believe it was Gustard, but I could be wrong. They openly said uh, that on one of their products, they they knew how to fix an issue which caused higher IMD, but they didn't fix it because it would lower Synad. Huh. <laughs> Even though it's pretty widely established that uh, <laughs> IMD is much more audible than harmonic distortion is. Mm. Michael, I, I cut you off before. You wanted to say something. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's. I think there's an interesting historic example um, of this, uh, and that is the Air QB9 DAC. So that came out in 2009, and uh, the designer, Charlie Hansen, um, put a little switch on the back of the DAC, uh, and, it, and one position read measure, and the other uh, said listen. And so, and that was, you know, at so 2009, I could almost call it the John Atkinson switch, <laughs> you know? So when John did his measurements, he was, you know, you put that thing in measure and it, and it will measure much better than in the listen position, you know, that, so that's a, that is someone, and Charlie was very um, measurement based science based in his approach to, to design, um, However, he was also someone who understood that you can deviate from the ideal measurements and and get a more pleasing result. Uh, but he just made a switch. It's kind of brilliant, you know, even still from 2009. Um, and as a buyer, you know, if you if you say, you know what, I want a DAC that measures really well, so leave it in the measure position. It's fine. Uh, but if you're <laughs> someone who says, ah, you know what, I want it to measure really well, so I know it's designed properly, but I'm more concerned about sound, then put it in the listen position. It's, it's a really interesting uh, example. IFI did something pretty yes, similar, actually, on did. their IDSD yeah. DACs. Um, th that switch, what it actually does is mm. um, when it when you put it in, I think they called it bit perfect. Uh, it basically puts it in. It's not actually NOS, but it's a sort of pseudo NOS, non oversampling uh, mm. mode, which a lot of people really like the sound of. Um, I, I personally really like NOS DACs, and uh, yeah, a lot of people like NOS DACs. Mm. But there are some objective problems. It's it's harder to get low distortion on a NOS DAC. Uh, the treble does roll off slightly, and you also get uh, what's called uh, aliasing as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some objective problems, but people really like the sound of it, and it's not something which requires a hardware change. So yeah, they just they just put a switch on. Yeah. So once again, there's another example of how you can't reconcile the measurements with what people 
you find subject in the listing chair enjoyable, right? It, it seems yeah. to be a disconnect. It's this disconnect that, that troubles me because I see a lot of sort of, I hate to say that I want to use a crude term here. I see a lot of dick swinging on the internet <laughs> about measurements. On the right? internet? Dick on swinging. the internet. Are you serious? Yeah. A lot of blowhard behavior, you know, where people kind of just, <laughs> they don't seem to be aware that there is a disconnect between measurements and what we hear. And they'll just happily crap on about the measurements as if they are the the definitive take on something when as you have highlighted today cameron several times that is that is absolutely not the case and uh, th there's nothing wrong with buying objectively uh, well measuring products at all. That, that, nope. that's something else i want to make clear is hmm. it's a preference thing i i i, I do think that uh, to be honest a lot of the people who have this kind of mentality typically haven't gone out and actually tried a wide range of gear. They basically just looked on the internet, decided what they want to believe, and, and then bought a product based on that, mm. which that goes for subjective people too. You know, you'll see people buying a particular product and then bullying people who've bought something else because, oh, well, that sounds way worse. Well, have you tried it? No, but people X, Y, and Z said it was worse. So uh, it's a fact. Mm. There's nothing wrong with buying objectively well-measuring products. And in fact, I, I really like products where it's clear that the engineering behind it is just so well thought through. Mm. I mean, the, the, the Hollow May, that's my main deck at the moment. And it, it's still, for my ears, the best sounding deck I've tried. But also I'd be lying if a large part of why I've got it isn't for the fact that just everything about the design and the objective performance is so ridiculously impressive. You know, the fact that they've managed to do this and mm. a lot of other manufacturers haven't actually got close, at least with R2R designs. That's still impressive. And some people just like that kind of thing. It's like watches. People pay tons of money for expensive watches, not because they actually necessarily build the time better, but just they like the way that the movement's been designed. Do you think, therefore, I mean, you've just mentioned that you know you, you like the fact that it's the product is engineered well. Do you think it's, it's kind of giving you a sense of security? I think so, yeah. Uh, when, when a product has good measurements that that is a safety blanket in a way it, it's mm. a comforting feeling especially if you're newer to the hobby and, mm. and you don't have that much to spend on stuff you know you can't go out and buy a dan d'agostino amp and wilson speakers and all that kind of stuff right. if someone on the internet said to you you can have an audibly transparent perfect system for less than 500 dollars, and i've got the science to prove it it's it's that's a pretty enticing offer it's highly enticing. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, pe people want, want to believe that. But it doesn't give you the whole picture, though, does it? Because that science to prove it is only, well, it's not even proof. It's not very, very much proof of anything. It's not proof of, it's not proof of sound quality, I don't think, is it? I, I don't think so. But then they would say different. They would say that it is, that it is audibly transparent and two products with over 110 dB Synad sound the same. You can't tell the difference between them. And if, if you think there's a difference, it's just placebo. Hmm. But you've just said that, that the intermodulation distortion can vary with DAX even when Synad is the same, right? You can have one it, it, or... It can. Right. So that, there are other factors. I mean, if you, I guess it's like saying, well, let's, let's bring it back to your car analogy. I can tell you, you know, Cameron, you can buy a car for 500 bucks that drives perfectly because I've got the measurements to prove it. And here is like the, yeah, the horsepower and it's naught to 60 speed. And that's all you need to know that breeds a certain kind of myopia, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, and to use another car analogy, even the 
most wealthy uh, and talent-rich engineering and car manufacturers uh, in the world, they don't just design a car and simulate it and, and test it on a dynalo. They F1 teams, they, they test things in wind tunnels and on the track. They actually they don't know how for sure how their car is going to perform until they actually put it into practice. Right. The simulation and computer-aided design and all that kind of stuff, that is just one part of the process. And it comes before the actual on-track testing. There's a reason why, you know, BMW still uses the, the Nürburgring to test most of their cars. Right. Rather than just sticking it on a Dynalo, seeing how much horsepower it's got. Oh, higher number, better. Great. Ship it. Right. I mean, I just, I, I, I understand the insecurity of being a newcomer and not wanting to make a mistake with the money you spend. But I think, I've, I, I mean, I've certainly addressed this on this podcast numerous times, is that the great thing, especially if you live in the USA, about a lot of this affordable gear is it's available on uh, money-back return policy. So mm. you can buy a topping DAC, and then if you don't like it, send it back. I know I did it recently here in Germany. So I'm, I just I, – I, I'm, I'm just trying to think, okay, what, what I'm trying to get to here is how can we somehow encourage people not to be drawn towards this sort of – this myopia of just a, a few numbers being – a pseudo guarantee of sound quality. What can we do to encourage people to be more exploratory? I think the the best thing that can be done is to encourage people to go out and actually try things themselves. Now, there are of course significant problems with listening. Everyone is susceptible to placebo and expectation bias, and mm -hmm. no no one's immune to that. It doesn't matter how experienced you are, how good your hearing is. But at the same time, the best way to kind of get get practical experience that measurements don't give you the full picture is to go out and try things yourself. In my experience, not everyone, but a lot of the people who are very, very measurement militant haven't actually gone and tried a bunch of stuff. Right. Go to your local hi-fi store, drive, take a drive, go and try a bunch of stuff and see what you think, because you might be quite surprised at the results. That's the best way to do it. That's, that's the best way. And this also actually speaks to the of complete polar opposite is the people who pick something which subjectively they either like or have been told to like mm. uh, and, and refuse to try anything else because the, the forum that they use or group of people that they interact with says it's <clears> bad. <throat> Go try it. What's the worst that can happen? You don't like it. And so you put it back on the shelf. Try, try stuff. Take advantage of these 365 day returns in some yes. cases. Yes. Offers. Mm. Try stuff. That's That's the best way to do it. Yeah, I think it is, I think you're right. I think it is encouraging people to kind of go on their own journey with these things and and yeah, m make up their own experiences. I mean, I feel like a broken record saying this because I've always said like go out and buy stuff and send it back if you don't like it and build up a sort of catalog of experience with certain hi-fi products. And I can I can give you a specific example here. So you can buy a shit Modi 3, where are we at with 3? It's 3, right? In the USA for 100 or so dollars and you can get a topping is it the D10S, the, sh the 150 euro one? I forget the number, but it's about it's 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 a, got it, about eight different products in that price range, right? But it's basically a hundred ish euro or dollar DAC, and it's it's got three inputs: USB, coax, yeah. and Tosling, as does the Modi three, right? And now you can buy both of those with money back guarantee. So though I know shit has a restocking fee, that's the price of doing this. You could buy both, and you could try these two different DACs in your hi-fi or head-fi system at home and decide for yourself which one you like. You don't need a forum or or even somebody like me to tell you that this mm. thing is good or not very good. I, I know which one I prefer. I'm not going to say which one I prefer, but I just, 
I wish people would just do stuff. Do rather than me, me too. Right, like read on the internet and go. Oh, I'm going to tell this other person that he's wrong. Right, just what are you doing yeah, with it, your life? It, people, I mean, you should always try and get information. And this this isn't just audio related, but in audio again, mm. get information from different sources. Don't just use one forum. Don't just watch one reviewer. Don't just speak to one group of people because in audio there is a lot of sort of groupthink. You know, people tend to gravitate towards groups and forums where people are telling them things they want to hear, justifying their purchases. And so you end up with, it's like, if you go on super best audio friends, you'll see a certain selection of products, which they will say subjectively, and in some cases, objectively are the, the ones you should buy. You go to audio science review, and they'll give you a completely different selection of products. And most of the people on that site will back up that argument. Uh, and then you go on what's best for them or something, and, and they'll give you a completely <laughs> different selection again. You go to any one of these places and the answer you get will be different. And as a reviewer, I'm sure you probably get this too. You get people messaging you and emailing you directly saying, hey, I'm trying to decide between these two, which one should I get? And in some cases, I'll email back saying, well, okay, what, what headphones or speakers are you using? What what music do you listen to? And they go, well, which one do you think is best? That's not the question. I don't know what you listen to. I don't know what you're pairing it with. I can't answer the question. It's my preferences might not even be anything close to yours. It, well, I, I always come up with this one. It's like when it's like asking somebody, "What's the best fruit?" <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Well, it's just there's lots of different fruits, but they all taste different, feel different in the mouth. They just like I related to this actually. So I made a video recently about a Sonos soundbar. Um, and compared it to a, a hi-fi system. And somebody chimed in today on a comment, John, you do realize this is an oranges versus apples comparison. And in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, actually, absolutely, I fucking do. Because that was the whole point. <laughs> it's because if you only eat apples, then you only know how apples taste. And every yeah. once in a while, you've got to venture out and try something like an orange, right? Because then you, that might give you a, a hint as to maybe why you shouldn't eat a lemon. Like, but you might like a lime because that's somewhere in between, right? Mm. So it's, yeah, I just, I, I always, I always bring it back. To, yeah. Not cars, but fruit. There is no best fruit. There's no best vegetable, right? There's no I, I best. I really like that quote. That's best a really good cut, yeah. cut of meat. Yeah. yeah. Michael, do, should we end it here? I mean, it just seems like a silly way to end it, but unless I you have any more I think it's always questions. good to end on fruit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to sleep now. I'm going to be contemplating what the best fruit is. If, some, if somebody can tell me, um, um, objectively speaking, with measurements to back it up, what's the best fruit? I'm happy to hear from you. Anginess density index or something. Well, I can There's... say with uh, tequila, I know what the best fruit is. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But with, okay, but what about with gin and tonic? Yeah. Strawberries. Well, strawberries and the... gin. And oh. if anyone says it's a girly drink and you shouldn't have it, then they can fight me. <laughs> well, what about cucumber? Cucumber can be delicious. Cucumber, cucumber lime, all that's good. But strawberries are uh -huh. perfect. They're the best, are they, Cameron? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We've arrived at the best, finally. <laughs> strawberries are the best fruit. <laughs> But don't take my word for it. Go and ask some other people as well. Uh, yeah. Try it for yourself. I may have this trial. Try it for things. yourself. Go and make one. Yeah. yeah. Gentlemen, I think we should draw a line under here. This was a most illuminating discussion. Cameron, thank you ever so much for taking time to talk to and enlighten us as to thank what we me on. can learn and what we don't yet know. Um, and thank you, Michael, for joining us from your ba 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 barn again. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks, Cameron. That was great. Thanks. Thank you. 